Galatians 4 verse 7 says, Therefore you are no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ Jesus. We could probably pull the volume down a little bit in the house because that's a touch loud. New Living Translation, John 17, 23 says, I in them, Jesus is praying, he said, I in them and you in me that they may be made perfect in one and the world may know, and I love this, you ready? The world may know that you have sent me, this is what the world may know that you have sent me and we all go, amen. We want the world to know that Jesus was sent by God the Father. But it doesn't finish there. He says, and have loved them. The world would know that you've sent me and have loved them as... You have loved me. That the whole world would know that you sent Jesus Christ. It's easy for us to say amen to that. But he says, and the whole world would know that you have loved them as you have loved me. How will the world know that he loves you the same way he loves Jesus if you don't know that? How will the world ever see that if you're still walking around thinking, oh man, I just wish he loved me. I just wish he knew me. Psalms 22 verse 22 says this, I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will praise you. He calls us his brethren. The Messianic Psalm, if you've ever read through Psalms 22, you'll know exactly what I'm saying. The Messianic Psalm, it's the cry of Christ while he's on the cross. And he says, I will declare your name to my brethren. He calls us his brothers. God says, I love you the same way I love my son Jesus. He calls us his brothers. Paul says we're no longer slaves and servants, but we are sons adopted. And if we're adopted, then we're heirs and co-heirs with Christ. I'm going to read it through to you again, just in case. Can I just say this? This is not Pastor Phil coming up with something. This is not cherry-picking the passages to make them fit what I want to say. This is the Word of God revealed to the body of Christ, but so many people in the body haven't recognized this is the Word of God to them. Let me read it. Paul's writing to the church at Galatia. By extension, he's writing to the church across the whole globe. And he says, Therefore, you are no longer a slave but a son. And if a son, if you're a son... If you have been redeemed, born again, born of the Spirit of God, if you're a son, then you're an heir of God through Christ Jesus. Jesus stands and he prays and he's praying for his disciples and he's praying to his heavenly Father and he says, I in them, you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. The author of Hebrews quotes Psalms 22 and he says, Jesus calls us his brothers. Can I just do this? You ready? Why would we ever live here? Why would we live down here low, squabbling for scraps of affection from one another? Why would we be fighting over, he did this to me and she did that to me, and I wish they'd talk to me better, and they don't talk to me the right way? Why would we live here when God has called us to live here as heirs and co-heirs with Christ? Can you imagine Jesus ever living down here? Well, if he's not going to talk to me that way, I won't do any more miracles in the town of Galilee as far as I'm concerned. Can you imagine Jesus doing that? Can you imagine Jesus going, Peter, if you're going to reject me next time you're going under the water, I'm going to let you sink. He just doesn't do that. Why? Because he knows who he is. And the greatest problem across the body of Christ is nobody knows who they are. Their identity is defined and shaped by what the world says, by who the parents say you are, by who your friends say you are. And how many people know parents let you down? I'm a parent. I can say that. My kids, don't put your hand up. You put your hands down. But, you know, everybody else. Parents let you down. 
Friends let you down. Family let you down. Bosses let you down. Jesus Christ will never, ever let you down. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And his words that he speaks over you are the only words that should shape and define you and define who you are in him. That's a good place for an amen. Why would we live low? Why would we live bound in bitterness and squabbling for scraps, vying for, and I've written this down, vying for attention and affection and value and validation from all these different places? Why do we see young men, young women looking to the opposite sex to try and validate their existence instead of looking to God to tell them who they actually are? Why do we see people working all their life so they can buy a bigger boat, a bigger house, have a bigger bank balance so that they can feel like they're somebody special and significant instead of looking to God to find out who they are? Have you, do you know what I'm talking about? How many people kill other people off so that they can get promoted? How many people do you see them when someone gets promoted, they run around bagging them out, putting them down, trying to pull them down? How many church people do we see ripping down other ministries. It's disgusting. Oh, they're ripping down Hillsong and they're ripping down Bethel and they're ripping down Elevation. They're ripping down anybody who does something significant for God and his kingdom and they're so busy ripping everything. Do you know what? Here's what a revelation I got the other day. I have 24 hours in a day. I don't know how many you have. I only have 24. And out of my 24, I need to sleep. Not all of them, just some. Out of that 24, I need to work for some of them. Yes? Anyone else the same? Out of that 24, I go to the bathroom for some, not a lot, but you know, some. Out of that 24, I have to shower and I have to eat and I have to sleep and I have to work. And yes, you, you. And so I have a few hours, a few hours each and every day. I have those few hours spare. And in those few hours, I can choose whether I tell you about the goodness of God and whether I tell people I meet about how great God is or how terrible everybody else is. And if I tell everybody how horrible everybody else is, do you know what? People start tuning out and stop listening. And my capacity to influence goes like this. It's rapidly diminished. So why don't you spend your time telling everybody how good God is instead of telling everybody how bad everybody else is? That's my new revelation for today. I just thought I'd share it with you. Okay. I'm going to read to you this morning. I'm going to ask you to turn to Luke 15. We're going to read a fair bit of scripture. Maybe you've read this before. You've probably read it. If you've been saved for any length of, in church for any number of times, you've been read this hundreds of times. But I'm going to pray this morning that we see it with fresh eyes. I'm going to pray this morning that we don't see it the way we've always seen it. But God, talk to us this morning. Show me something in my spirit. Luke chapter 15. Luke 15 verse 1. Then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him, that's Jesus, to hear him. Just let me say it again. You ready? All the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to Jesus to hear him. They so wanted to be near Jesus and hear what he had to say. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes complained, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Why didn't they say, how cool is that, that these people we've been trying to reach and trying to tell about Jesus are finally, or trying to tell about the coming Messiah, are finally coming to Jesus? Why didn't they say that? Why didn't they say, man, people like Zacchaeus and the centurion are turning their lives around and they're living more righteous and we've been trying to get them to do that? No, 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 they were offended that they were going to Jesus and they were offended that Jesus would eat with them. 
And Jesus would eat with them without correcting them harshly and telling them all the things that they did wrong. He would just receive them, eat with them, love them and embrace them and help them to develop and know who they are and who God says they are. And the Pharisees and the scribes were offended. So Jesus tells them this story. He tells them three parables here. It's a tripart parable and he tells them all three things to tell them one truth. This is why he's telling them this to answer one question. You're asking me why I eat with these people. Let me tell you why I am eating with these people. Luke 15 verse 3, he spoke this parable to them. He said, are you ready? Verse 4, what man? He's talking to the Pharisees and the scribes who are wondering why he's eating with the sinners and the tax collectors. He says, what man of you having a hundred sheep, if he loses one, does not leave the 99 in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it. Who does that? Who doesn't leave their 99 and go find the one that was lost? And you know what? When you read through, in case you've ever been bothered, if you read through the different commentaries on this, they have all sorts of weird ideas and they're like, oh, he's talking about this and he's talking about that. And I nearly fell off there. He's talking about this and he's talking about that. And can I just say, that's all probably really true, but he's trying to make one point. He says, nobody just ignores the one that was lost. Nobody goes, oh, well, that's too bad. I've got 99, that'll do. You leave them because they're safe and they're okay and you go and find the one that was lost. You're asking me why I'm eating with these people. That's why, because none of you would just go, oh, well, I've got 99 left. You get that, don't you? He goes on, let me give you another parable. He says in 15 verse 8, or what woman having 10 silver coins? Can I pause? You know, people say, oh, the 10 silver coins, they represent the dowry that we're given. Who cares? You know, you don't understand it was to the marriage and then if she turned up to the marriage without her 10 silver coins, stop. He says this, he says, what woman having 10 silver coins, if she loses one, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, search carefully until she finds it. She searches and searches and sweeps and lights candles and lifts up rugs and turns over tables and lifts up couches and she looks and looks until she finds it. Why? Because it's valuable. I don't care why she was given them. That's an irrelevant point. She searches for it because it was worth something. Anyone ever lost a lot of money, like five bucks? I'm a pastor, I have to start low. We, we were having solar panels put onto our roof a little while ago and um, my, my parents gave me this safe. I don't need a safe because I haven't got a lot of money, but they gave me one. Actually, it came from my uncle, but anyway, moving on. And they gave me this safe, right? And it's like, a, a, like one of those boop, 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 safe. And I had the solar panel money in the safe, yeah? So it's, it's really cool, like solar panel money's in the safe. They're going to put the solar panels on. I'm going to go and... Open the safe, right? Except when I went to boop, 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 it just did this. And they nearly finished. And, and you realise that all the money to pay them is in there. And this isn't working. And everything that's valuable is in there. And, and so I just went, oh, well doesn't matter. It's only a few thousand dollars in there. Who cares? We'll just throw it out and get another one. I'll just go to the bank and get some more money out. No, I don't have any more money in the bank. All my money was in the safe. Are you following me this morning? 
And so, so being smart, you have a key to the safe. So I went to get the key. However, not being smart, I put the key in a safe place. <laughs> Has anyone ever put this, something in a safe place? and Not the safe, but in the safe place. And then you stood there trying to remember where that safe place was. And I don't know about you, I don't know how many keys you have, but like I have a set of keys for the church, I have a set of keys for my car, a set of keys for the house, a set of keys, just, and then I've got those other keys, you know, the ones that you accumulate over a lifetime, and you, you no longer know what they're for, and so I'm, you've got to picture this, I'm laying on the floor, and I have gathered and searched through my house to find every single thing that looks like a key, even if it wasn't a key, I still thought maybe I was living in hope. Or maybe it'll work. And I am trying every single key to try and put... Why? Because what was valuable, I needed to get to. And she's t- Jesus tells you this story so that you can recognize, well, why would you eat with these people? Because they're valuable. Because they're valuable. They're as valuable. In fact, they're more valuable than the coin. And there's not even a woman that would just ignore the coin. She would do everything she could to get the coin because it's valuable. Why are you eating with these people? Because they're valuable. And he's not telling you this story in the Bible so we can go, oh, that was cool. He's telling you because you are the people that he's looking for. You are the ones who are valuable. And there's other people who look and they don't see your value and they diminish your value and they don't think you're worth anything. But he's telling this story to go, no, no, no. You are incredibly valuable and I will do everything I can to help find and search for and seek that which was lost until it is found because you're valuable. Then he gives this final, final story. It's called the prodigal son. We call it the parable of the prodigal son, which actually has nothing to do really with the son. The the story is told to the Pharisees and the Pharisees, and I'm going to unpack it a bit, but the story is told to the Pharisees and the Pharisees aren't thinking about the son. Pharisees are thinking all about the father and and because it's a patriarchal system. And now I'm going to tell you this. You ready? So here we go. Luke 15, verse 11. He said, a certain man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, can I just pause? I know I've preached this sort of message about the good, the prodigal son before. I, I do know that. And you might be sitting there going, so why, why are you doing it again? Because, because sometimes when I'm nailing something into timber, I have to hit it twice with a hammer to get it to go in. Sometimes timber's a little thicker and I've got to hit it a few more times. Why am I telling the story? Because I think if you're anything like me, and I think we're all human, so we're all a little like me, we're all a little thick. We're all a little hard-headed. And sometimes these truths need to be nailed home a few times till we finally go, oh, let me tell you the truth. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. We read that, don't we? We go, yeah, and? No, it's more than a and. He just said, Dad, I don't want to be about what you're about. Dad, I I don't care what you're trying to build. I don't care what you're trying to do. I I want my inheritance. Now, Now, I don't know about you, but when you get an inheritance, you normally get an inheritance after the person's passed away. What he's actually saying is, Dad, I wish you were dead. Your dreams, your desires, your hopes. Can you imagine the dad? He's sitting there, and maybe the dad's sitting there and he's thinking, man, I can't wait till my kids grow up and take 
the run of the farm. That's going to be such a great day when my kids raise up and they're running everything and I can sit back and his son has just turned to him and said, Dad, I don't care what your dreams and desires are. Just give me my portion now so I can go. Everybody who stood there listening to this story is thinking, what an entitled little twerp. Every, we read it and we kind of like, because we know the end of the story, we're like, oh yeah. But at the time, they didn't know the rest of the story. And so he's just said there was this dad, he had two sons and the younger son said, dad, I want what you owe me. And, and we need to look at that in the context and go, dad doesn't owe him anything at the moment because dad's still breathing. Dad doesn't owe, but don't we see that in our society today? Kids who want everything from mum and dad and they demand it and they stomp their feet until they get what they want. That's what this kid's doing. And so everybody who's reading this story is like, man, this kid doesn't need money. He needs a good encouragement to change his behaviour or something, you know. But his dad doesn't do that. His dad gives him his portion. He goes on, Luke 15 verse 13. Not many days after, I like that, not many days after, you just asked me for my money, I've given you some money, not many days after he's gone. The younger son gathered all together and journeyed to a far country and there he wasted his possessions with prodigal living. But when he had spent all, that, all there arose a severe famine in that land and he began to be in want. I want you to imagine yourself hearing this story for the first time. What are you thinking now? First time, you've never, you don't know the end of the story. Let's just pretend this is the very first time. The son, the, 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 the jumped up, upstart little twerpy kid who demanded everything, has taken his money and run off and he's wasted his money and now he's in want. And then he went and joined himself to the citizens of that country and he sent him into the field to feed his swine. I'm going to come to it. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, but nobody gave him anything. You're reading this for the first time. You're seeing and hearing this story for the first time. What, what are you thinking now? You're a Pharisee or a scribe. What are you thinking now? Who's thinking, yes, suck it. I am. I'm thinking, you little jumped up upstart. You took your dad's money. And it wouldn't be so, like if you had read that story and he went and he was robbed, he might have elicited a certain amount of sympathy from the crowd, wouldn't he? Some people would have thought, oh, the poor kid, he was robbed. No, no, he was still a little snot gobbler who took his dad's money and nicked off and spent it drinking, boozing, gambling and girls and, and prodigal living. That's what he was saying. Prodigal living, drinking, gambling girls, stuff like that. Stuff that the Pharisees and scribes would have gone, that's disgusting. That's what Jesus was saying. And he spent everything he had. And you can almost feel it. I can because I live like that. And he's like, yes, I am so glad he got what was coming to him. In fact, in fact, he actually goes, oh, he's digging into this story. He's like, no, no, he actually had to go and feed swine. And so in Israel, in the Jewish mindset, pigs are the worst of the worst, right? Pigs are the most disgusting animal. Even today in Israel, there's one piggery in all of Israel, and it's built on a raised platform because pigs shouldn't touch the ground in Israel's soil. It's kind of really weird. But anyway, they hate pigs. I don't know. Anyone else ever had bacon? I personally love pigs, but they hate pigs. And they hate them with a passion. 
And pigs are the worst of the worst. And so this guy is having to feed pigs. And it's so bad that not only can he not eat, he can't even eat what the pigs. The pigs are eating better than him because he's done everything wrong. You can understand if maybe Jesus said, you know, and he was working really hard in a business venture and he lost it all. And there'd be a few people that would go, oh, poor kid. No, he's doing everything he can to go, this kid is a pig of a man and he's feeding pigs and he's got everything coming to him that he deserves. That's the story. Are we still good? Good. And he goes on. Let me find where I'm up to. When he came to himself, he said, how many, verse 17, sorry, thank you. How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough to spare? And I perish with hunger. I will arise and I will go to my father and I will say to him, I have sinned against heaven and before you and I am no, worth, no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your servants. Make me a servant. I'm not a son. Make me a servant. I'm not good enough to be called your son. Make me a servant. And that's really important because we see ourselves as servants. We see ourselves as slaves. We see ourselves as undeserving of God's goodness toward us. He's telling the story to answer, why do you eat with these sort of people? He goes on. And he arose and he came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion on him and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. This is love. When the father saw him a great way off, which tells you the father's looking out for him and he sees like a speck on the horizon. He sees something in the distance and something springs up in his heart and he runs and embraces his kid, falls on his neck and kisses him. And as I'm reading this and I'm writing this up the other day and I want to share this journey that I had many years ago when I was 16 years old. I was sitting at my best friend's house And my best friends, we're all just sitting around like 16-year-old kids do, playing computer games, watching TV, and the phone rings. And while I'm standing there or I'm sitting there, the phone rings, and I will never, as long as I live, forget this. The phone rings and the mum answers it. And the hospital is ringing to tell the mum that her eldest son, Peter's brother, is dead. For as long as I live, I'll never forget the cry in the mum's voice when she said to Michael, Michael, can you take the call? And and every, you know, there's like something that transpires in those seconds that seem to drift on. And in that moment of time, it's like everything stands still and there's a cry of anguish in her voice. And she says, Michael, can you take the call? And she passes the phone over and she's stopped and she said, Alan's dead. Michael gets on the phone and he takes the rest of the call. But in that moment of time, it's like everything stops. Her heart's aching. And you, I don't want to try and bring this in, but has anyone ever been in that moment where grief 
that's so incredibly overwhelming enters that room and it feels like everything, and there's this sense of numbness, this sense of total loss, there's this cry of anguish and, and it's, your tears haven't come yet but you, you know there's this breaking deep inside the heart and I wanted to paint that picture for you because I'm sitting here and I'm writing this sermon and I'm literally like, my Rachel loves me and she'll always come over and I'm writing the sermon and while I'm writing, I'm thinking about that story and I am, I'm not like a couple of tears, I am weeping at the time, you know, the shoulder shaking because I remember that day like it was yesterday and I'm sitting there and I'm thinking to myself about this story and I thought as I was comparing those two, I thought, just what would she have done if after receiving that phone call, after knowing that her oldest son had gone and been passed away, what, what would she have done if she had turned around and seen him coming up the driveway? I've talked to so many people now after 16 years of ministry who've lost somebody and, and they say that when they've lost somebody, the amount of times they sit there and they say, you know, I'm, I, I sometimes still expect them to walk through the door. And it takes years for that kind of sense of expectation to go away. It's almost like your brain doesn't want to believe what has happened has happened. And they still talk about how... I remember seeing Pastor Glenn when he'd lost his wife, Erna, and we were sitting in the room and Erna's laying in the bed and she's the shell. She's gone to glory. But I'm talking to Glenn. I remember Glenn looking at me and he said, I'm waiting for her to breathe. Like, it's, it's not real yet. It's, this just can't be happening. And I want you to picture all of that emotion and bring it into this story because this is a story that Jesus is telling because when the father looks up and he sees his son, it reminded me so much of what would Mrs... I can't say the name, but I, what would the lady have done if she had turned at that moment and seen her son walking up their driveway? Do you think she would have gone, oh, oh, goody... It's not me, it's someone. The Bible says that he ran. This stoic Jewish gentleman who never ran, he didn't just run. The, the concept is he sprinted. Something that was dead had risen back up in his heart and he sprinted to his son. He ran as fast as he could. He didn't care whether anybody thought he looked silly. He couldn't give a rip what anyone thought of him. He sprinted to his son to grab him. And I thought about that lady and I thought, what would she have done had she seen her son walking up the driveway that day? And we can feel that, can't we? I wanted you to feel that this morning because that's how God feels about you. That's literally how God feels about you right now. That when you turn to God, he is not like, oh, I was wondering when Lisa would finally get her act together. He's running with everything he has to put his arms around and go, I love you. Welcome home. He's sprinting, unconcerned about whether he's dignified or whether he looks cool or whether he's, you know, wonder how everyone... He doesn't give a rip. He's sprinting to grab hold of his son and say, my son who was dead is alive. He's running to him. 
And that thought couldn't get out of my head. And all I could picture all day and what I want you to take away from this is your dad runs to you. He casts caution to the wind and he runs to you. He sends his one and only son to die on the cross and to pay for every sin and he runs to you. He doesn't hold back. He's not playing it cool. He's not like, oh, gee, I hope I don't look. He's running to you with everything he has, everything open, everything exposed and he's running to you to embrace you and go, you are not a servant, you're a son. The one I had lost is alive. That relief, that release of just, my gosh, he's alive. I thought for all this time he was dead and he's just turned back up and walked into my life. And if you don't get that concept that that's how God thinks of you, you'll never see anyone else that way. You'll never rejoice. You'll never get to the point where you can see someone eating and drinking with a sinner and absolutely rejoice. You'll never get to the point where you can sit and eat and drink with a sinner and someone who's making horrible mistakes and go, man, I just love you because my dad loved me when I was dead, when I was a pig pen, swill, swine-eating scumbag of a son. He refused to give up on me. He refused to welcome me in as a slave or a servant. He welcomed me in as a son. Church, I just, I'm going to stop there. I want you to get that because I'm honestly, we live here. We live so low. Oh, Nerida, what, what do you think of me? Am I too fat? Am I too thin? Am I too hairy? Am I too bald? Am I, am I okay? Or oh, Phil, what do you think of me? Am I too, do I drive too nice a car or too bad a car? Oh, Phil, what do you think? Oh, man, there's a lot of Phil's in here. Well, Sean, what, do you think my kids are okay? Are they behaving okay enough for you? Oh, what do you think of this? And what do you think of that? Why the heck would we live here when God is calling us home, not as a servant, not as a slave, but a son? This son who was dead. And I'm telling you, I don't, I don't hope that I could preach just a minuscule of what I felt as I was preparing. Because I was bawling my eyes out when I realized that's how my dad treats me. He doesn't stand back and wonder. He, he gave his son while I was still a sinner so that I would have access to come home and he could redeem me and call me a son. He runs. He runs. He runs to you. He doesn't care where you've been. He doesn't care what you've done. He runs to embrace you. He runs to hold you. He runs to kiss you. And maybe you're, you know, you're one of those that, you know, I just feel uncovered. He runs to kiss you, to lavish. And you can hear it in the next few, and I'm gonna not gonna unpack them today, but you can hear it as he says, take these old clothes away and get him the best robe. Get, get the finest sandals for his feet. Go and get him the ring and put it back on his finger. He's not a servant. He's not a slave. He's my son. The son who was dead is home and everything's gonna be restored to him. And I'm not gonna treat him any differently than I ever did before, even though he blew it. I'm gonna brace him and love him because he is my son. Please see yourself as a son, not as a servant, not as a slave, but you are a son of the Most High God. And it doesn't, can I just, I don't give a stuff what anyone else says about you, thinks about you, or has done to you. You're a son of God. And it's time to come home. It's time for you to get it in your head. Man, I'm a son of God.
You know, people, well, oh, Phil, we don't like it when you do this and we don't like it. I don't care. I'm a son of God. And if that's secure, everything else can fall apart. I'm a son. I can embrace chaos and embrace pain and embrace problems because I'm a son. I'm a son. I want to finish with a final story. Ernest Hemingway tells a story of a Spanish father and his teenage son. The relationship between the father and the son becomes strained and eventually it's shattered. The rebellious son, who we're going to call Paco, Paco, moves away. This father begins this long and arduous search to find his son. You know, it doesn't matter what you've done. You know, this is, you know, you might think you've gone too far or you've done too much. You don't understand. This guy wished his dad dead. This guy took every bit of money from his dad's farm that was his and spent it and blew it on gambling and girls. I mean, he's, he's slapped his father in the face. He's tarnished his good name. He's done everything wrong. His dad's still looking for him and longing for the day that he would come home. Story Ernest Hemingway says is the father starts this long and arduous journey of trying to find his son. And after many years, he can't find him, but he knows he's out there. So he simply writes an article, puts it in the Madrid paper. He says, Paco, please, please meet me on the steps outside the tower tomorrow morning. All is forgiven. Ernest Hemingway says the next day, 800 Parkos turn up waiting to be forgiven by their father. How many of us are waiting to be forgiven by our father? Thank you so much for joining us this morning. We really hope you guys enjoyed the service. We are praying for you and we hope you have an amazing week. See you next week.